Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 279. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Well, thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 279 you're listening to. My guest today is Kevin Ward. Kevin is a friend of mine that I know through my Friday morning video calls that I do with a group of guys from around the country and the globe. And we have gotten to know each other over the course of time. Quite honestly, we've never met in person. All of our dealings have been completely virtual, so it's very timely in the time of uh, coronavirus. But uh, we sat down and had a chat. Kevin is just, he's an amazing guy. First of all, he's a man of many talents. He's an engineer, producer, writer, arranger. Uh, He runs MixCoach.com, which is a uh, subscription-based mix coach class, if you will. Uh, You can check that out. I'll include a link in the show notes, of course. And he's been doing this since the early 90s. Yeah, he's been at it quite some time. He moved, I I won't take you through all of it now because we're going to talk about it in the interview, but essentially Kevin moved to Southern California within the last couple of years and he is dealing with all things uh, audiovisual at a church there. And we haven't really talked a lot about uh, worship sound here on this show. And I thought it would be really great to have Kevin on because he is so passionate about learning and teaching. So I figured he could, you know, tell us a bit about his world of worship sound and what that all means. Very excited to have Kevin on the show today. So Kevin Ward coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. I'm just going to tell you about some random crap. Mmm, that is so good. Gosh, nothing like a hot steaming cup of coffee after mowing the lawn. Yeah, I'm going to tell you about some stuff that has nothing to do with this show, and mowing the lawn is one of them. So uh, our electric mower died. Yeah, we have an electric mower. Not a plug-in mower, but a battery-powered mower. Super powerful. And it's been fantastic for the last couple of years. Well, there's some issue and it just stopped working. And I knew that it was a known issue because I did some research and figured it out. And it's under warranty. It's going to get repaired. It's going to take a little while, but I got to take it in. And I had to borrow my neighbor's lawnmower, which is an old school gas powered mower. Just a hunk of junk, honestly, just really beat up. And uh, But I, of course, very appreciative that he would be willing to lend me his mower. But the grass had grown so tall, uh, it probably grew, I'm going to say it was two feet tall, maybe about a foot and a half. Maybe that's an exaggeration. Yeah, we'll, we'll go with a foot and a half. And that mower had the hardest time getting through that grass. And the lower level parts of the grass were wet. And it just kept stalling out. I had to have, keep cleaning out the, the blade. And oh my God, when it was all done, it was done. But man, I smell like gas. I, I don't know. I hate that smell. It reminds me of being a kid mowing the lawn for my parents. Oh, God, I hated that. Anyhow, small, you know, small world problems really in the big picture, but just wanted to share that with you. 
don't let the grass get too tall, friends, because, uh, you know, it just, it sucks. And if you are in the market for a mower, uh, even though mine broke and it's still under warranty, five-year warranty, by the way, um, go get a lot, go get one of these battery-powered lawnmowers. I won't, uh, you know, try to bias you on what one you should buy, but there's several out there and I love ours. It's been great. So that has nothing to do with this show. I know it's ridiculous. Why are we talking about this? I think I'm just going stir crazy. That's what it is. All right. So I got the mower story out of the way. Let me tell you another story. This is an audio related story. And this, I think, will probably resonate with many of you. So I I have a long-term client. He sent me some files and said, okay, this song's ready to go. You can mix it. So I sat down, I mixed it. And in my opinion, I'm just going to say it, excuse my French, but I mixed the shit out of it. I think I did a great job and I was loving it. And I loved it so much. I was playing it in the car, on the phone and, you know, sent it to him and was super excited to hear his response. And Here's th- this is where email really becomes a challenging thing. I think a lot of you more experienced people know exactly where I'm about to go with this. So here's the deal. He emails me back and he says, hey, Matt, very unhappy with my guitars. We should talk. And I was like, oh, my God, what on earth could he be unhappy about? And this is where if you're like me, and I bet a lot of you are, you start to play the conversation in your head. What conversation am I about to have with my long-term client? And I was thinking of everything. I was like, oh my God, he's probably going to want to redo the mix. And oh, geez, it's, I don't know if I could do it. I'd put my all into it. I thought it was outstanding. And I don't normally just like think that right out of the gate on a mix. Usually it takes me a while to come around and go, okay, yeah, that's, I, I, I guess I did a good job. That was good. But this one, I felt good about it. So in my mind, I was thinking, okay, you know what? I might just have to just propose somebody else mix this because, you know, the drama was building in my head and I was getting upset and for no good reason because I had no information except that email. So I called him up. I said, hey, man, so um, I'm really loving this mix and this song and I'm really puzzled about your comments. Uh, Could you tell me more? And he said, oh, the mix, the mix is great. It's the guitars. They're hard pan left and right guitars. The There's these lines that mimic the vocal melody and they are slightly out of tune and rubbing against the vocal and it's really driving me nuts. Can you auto-tune them? I almost just like collapsed on the phone with him because I was so relieved. And this is just an example of, you know, email. How emails are crafted and, you know, you you can be on the sending end of that or the receiving end of that. And if you're on the receiving end, don't do what I did. Don't get all dramatic in your own head. Just call the person and find out, what can I do for you? There's no reason to get all upset. So it just goes to show you just cannot read an email and assume that the worst is about to happen. Now, I know many of you are like, duh. Yeah, right. Of course. But I guess um, I guess emotionally, I had put so much into that mix and was so proud of it that when I read that, I thought, he's crazy. What on earth could he be talking about? You know, another thing it shows is it doesn't matter how long you've been doing this, you could still uh, be ridiculous in in your own brain. So uh, take heart, take heart, relax, and uh, yeah, press on. So happy to say the mix has been accepted and he's digging it and I'm super happy. So that's that. Final thought of this rant. Uh, I know I talk a lot about 
cleaning up my studio and how it gets dirty. And I also have been, you know, pushing you not to sit around and stay up late at night and watch, uh, you know, Netflix or whatever it is on the TV and then not get a good night's sleep. So here's my solution for you. If there's some shows that you want to watch and your studio needs cleaning or whether that's a home studio or a big commercial facility, find your favorite show, put it on and in your studio, of course, and clean your studio. I sat down and watched multiple episodes of season three of Homeland while I got my studio clean yesterday. And I'm staring at it right now. That's why my voice is changing as I'm talking on the mic. And I'm looking around going, wow, this place is clean. I don't want I don't want to mess it up. So um, that's my tip for you. You want a distraction while you're cleaning your studio? Put on your favorite series and uh, let it run and uh, get that studio clean. All right, that's it. Rant's over. Drink more coffee. Take care of my friends. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So 
head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. All right, let's get to it. Kevin Ward here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So for the audience, Kevin and I, we met via Lid Shaw. And we met over the course of, I guess it was the Friday morning video calls we do. Is that, does that sound right to you? Yeah. After I was on Lidge's podcast, he said, hey, I've got a group of guys that they get together and and we chat every Friday morning. And I said, I'd love to be a part of that. And uh, I've been doing it off and on for almost four years now. So yeah. Currently you live in Southern California. Where in particular do you live? I live just outside of Anaheim in a city called Yorba Linda. Yorba Linda, California. It's the uh, flipper flop fame. That's where and uh, and Nick and President Nixon is from there. So oh. that's the that's the two things I can think of that are famous from here. But you moved there within the last couple of years, right? I moved out here in 2016, about middle of the year. Uh, I lived in Nashville for 20 years before that. Well. Yeah, 20 years before that, I lived in Nashville, had a recording studio and produced records and wrote and just, you name it. That's what that's what you have to do in Nashville to make a living is whatever, whatever it takes, you know. So <laughs> I did that for a while. Let's step back. Where did you grow up? Oh, I was born in a little town called Anniston, Alabama. It's between Birmingham and Atlanta. I lived there until I was uh, 18. I moved out, went to college. Um Went and played bass in, the, in a jazz band, a little junior college there. And then I went to electronic school all the, all the while thinking, you know, what can I do education-wise that's going to let me do what I want to do? And all I was, I was obsessed with at the time was being a recording engineer, being the you know, air quotes, big guy turning the knobs. My mom used to always, always say that I was going to be the big guy turning the knobs. So every decision I made whether it be school or even bands that I played with, all revolved around whether or not they recorded in big studios or whether or not they had a studio. And if they did, then they were a candidate. <laughs> so I would, I would do that. And I found a little place in Gadsden, Alabama, that uh, they had a little Tascam 38. And uh, I would go in there about once a week in between college classes and late at night, and I would rewire the studio every night. And I was just learning. I was a sponge, you know, that age when you're, 20 years old and you just can't get enough of something that recording studios was that for me. And then that little group ended, ended up recording in Nashville, which, you know, in, in a few little step by step landed me in a studio in Asheville, North Carolina. And I was the chief engineer there for, for five years. And they, that studio is still going strong. Uh, so I went from zero to zero to a hundred in about a week's time. Uh, what was the studio in Asheville? It was called Here Here at the time, and now it's called uh, Crossroads uh, Music. They do a lot of bluegrass and gospel music, and I I'll bet you even now I've I talked to them, or you know talked to some people that work there just this past week on on my little uh, podcast that I do and they've been recording tracks this week all remotely which I'm going to I'm going to get to the bottom of that but uh yeah they're still going strong but I was the chief engineer for 5 years and and we would literally I got my I got my hands dirty really really fast because I went from you know right out of college to recording um basically a record a week 
they would come in, the musicians would come in, it would be probably five or six musicians, and one, you know, we'd have piano, bass, drums, and like an acoustic guitar, and every one of those people would double on something. So we would we would cut tracks on Monday. If there was a big budget, and by big I mean just a few hundred dollars more, we would take two days to cut the tracks, five five tracks a day, but that was pretty rare. Typically we would cut 10 songs in a day. And then Tuesday and Wednesday would probably, we would uh, record vocals. And then Thursday and Friday we would mix it. And then the next weekend we'd do the same thing. And I did that for pretty much five years. So I kind of grew fond of having systems and you know having a, a a certain workflow to work with and that's what i've been trying to teach for you know ever since i've been trying to teach who was it originally that turned you on to the idea of recording studios so there was a little gospel group it wasn't little they were big for their for their genre called the henson family and they had a lead singer who i would put up against you know he he's he's gone now but i would have put him up against any of the crooner voices of country music. His name was Kenny Henson, and I thought he was uh, a rock star. Even mm-hmm. though he sang mostly church music, he was the coolest guy. And I started reading credits at that time, and I noticed the same name was on all the records, and his name was Kevin McManus, who I happened to, I talked to him live this week on my on my show. He was just the coolest guy to me. And you know, at that time, I was just young and naive, and I thought, I'm gonna meet him through some of these gospel groups that I worked with, I ended up in his studio in Nashville and, you know, peppered him with all kinds of questions. And he he and I are still close to this day. So he's probably one of the main guys that, that had the most influence on me in the studio. I always wanted my drums to sound like his. I always wanted to know how he mixed. I ended up working with some of the groups that he's worked with. So I guess if I could point to one guy, it would be Kevin McManus. So you went from uh, your your hometown in Alabama to Asheville, and you spent five years there. And what were the big takeaways from Asheville? Culturally, musically, uh, the studio you worked at, what are some of the things that you remember? Well, like I mentioned earlier, uh, the big takeaway from Asheville was just the, the workflow and the the power that comes from repetition and creating systems it's a good and a bad thing the good thing is that you learn how to be efficient which is a a huge thing for me when i'm in the studio i don't like to push people right to recording i like to kind of break the ice and and kind of let people just kind of take a breather and know that it's going to be fun i'm going to make it fun i'm going to try to make it memorable and the thing i the thing i remember about Asheville is that we had fun recording because you know it's it's easy to especially if you're not experienced i think this is one of the things that not so experienced engineers they do they're real serious about the craft of recording and i find that the best recording engineers are the ones that take it lightly but they're really good they're work, they're doing a lot behind the scenes that you don't see to make Make things as easy, so easy that you don't notice even, you know, that you're doing work. And I think that's one of the things that I took home from that is that, you know, you, you, you need to have a workflow that incorporates fun, but getting the work done, uh, everybody's on the team. And, you know, just like, you know, you record for five years, basically probably 30 or 40 records a year, then you tend to kind of cr- build this, uh, this workflow that just works. And then when I moved to Nashville, I remember working for 
some new producers and stuff. Uh, and I remember them being, you know, you, you try, you don't want to mention this stuff, but you notice what they notice. And I think what they noticed was like, wow, you did that already? Or, oh, I was going to ask you to do that. You kind of start thinking ahead because that's the, the inner workings of working in a recording studio where you, you don't want people to, you don't want to have to say, everybody wait. I've got to find the right microphone for this kick drum. I mean, there's probably people that do that and do well, but you, you tend to like learn to patch over things and make things work without people knowing that anything went wrong. I remember my remote on my, my studer went bad. You know, I was noticeably working harder, but the session didn't stop. And if I can add one more thing, I guess that I learned there is that, um, I don't look at any record as being small. I don't look at it as anything of being like, oh, it's just this. Because, you know, if you ask me anytime when I'm working on, you say, what have you worked on lately? And it seems like all I can remember is what I did last week. You know, so I think one of the things that I took home from that experience was that you've got these mom and pop gospel groups who have raked and scraped and saved their money for a whole year or more. And they're finally getting their kids in the recording studio and they're, they're, you know, they're taking a week of their vacation and they're spending all the money that they've saved for the last year. So it's no less important for me, right? right. I want to make this the biggest record I've done so far. Even if their, even if their abilities are not uh, what I'm used to, you know, I still want to make it a good experience. I want them to remember. And I still have people, you know, when you've been recording for 25 or 30 years, you have people come up to you and say, uh, you did my record ba- way back in 1991 when you first started. I remember blah, blah, blah. And and you were, uh, there was some cartoon that we were watching bet- between takes. And that's what they remember. They don't remember how good their performance was or even how good their record was. They remember what how much fun they had in the studio and what their experience was. That's what they take home usually. So I guess from Asheville, that's one, that's several things that I took home that I didn't even realize I took home from that. Why did you go to Nashville after that? I was working there and they were real busy, but I think in 96, there was a little bit of a dip in the economy. So in that whole time span, they kind of furloughed a few of us. I just kind of took it as an opportunity to say, you know, I want to end up in Nashville anyway. Why not just make the move? So that was about, that was in April or so of 96. And we loaded up the truck. So we moved to, oh, we moved to Nashville. And it was exciting, man. It was, uh, we rented an apartment that was twice as much as our rent in Nashville. And I took a job at this place called Hilltop, which is the, probably one of the oldest existing studios now. Been working every day. And I was, a uh, kind of a staff engineer there for about six months. And then I went independent. I still work there. I was just an independent engineer. Yeah, so, and then I, not too long after that, I ended up buying a Yamaha 2R and some ADATs and, uh, and it was off to the races, man. <laughs> <laughs> now, did you go there on your own or were you with friends or did were you already with your wife or a girlfriend or? Yeah, so me and Janet got married in 91, right when I first started. As a matter of fact, I took the job in March of 91 in Asheville we got married in August of 91 and then we moved in you know March April or so of 96 so we were there almost five years so at that time we had been married almost five years and uh, it was just me and Jana and we we moved to Bellevue and started working did she have any connection to music or audio well she's always been a great singer and she has been so supportive of what I do I mean like I'll beat myself up of 
you know, should I buy this computer? You know, it's going to be like this much money and or this software. And then uh, and she's always like, this is not your hobby. This is your career. You get what you need to get. So even though, and she sings background vocals every now and then on things that I produce, uh, we'll get in there together and sing together. And uh, but other than that, she's just you know supportive, and and just like uh, my biggest cheerleader. But I wish I wish we had the opportunity to sing more. Twenty year span in Nashville. Obviously, there's going to be some pretty significant milestones in that 20-year period. Can you think of, of the, the big takeaways from Nashville? You know, I think it has to do, if, I, if I'm thinking about this right now, and this is, um, this, this is something that I've been thinking a lot about since I moved to California. I built a studio in my basement, which is what a lot of, you know, a lot of us guys do. It's convenient, and it's, it's, it's a necessity more than more than it used to be but i had my little uh, uh little studio in my basement and i was busy i had uh several clients and stuff but it got to where you know as the internet got uh more reliable more, more fast and people could depend on it that um it was nothing for me to sit there for two or three weeks and just mix in my basement by myself all the time and i got to where it was like you know i I am a social person. I love conversation. I love being with people. I love uh, telling stories and hearing stories, and and I'm not getting that right here. Uh, so I think one of the things that I've learned, especially in the last three or four years since I've been here, is that if you want to get somewhere fast, you do it by yourself. But if you want to go far, you do it with a team. So I found that you know since I've been working at this uh, this church, Crosspoint in Anaheim. I can't do what I do without without people. And I don't know what it is, but there are people who volunteer for my team that are just I I don't know why or I don't know how I deserve to get them, you know? Because I, you know, I left I mean there was three or four people today in my studio today when I was trying to mix this uh new song that's supposed to come out Sunday. And uh and I just I don't know, there's just I, I think the take home from Nashville is and, and I think I I think I did this wrong a little bit. Um, one of my friends, Joe Carroll, which if you haven't talked to him, you need to. He's a, he's a great engineer in Nashville. We have similar paths in Nashville, and we were doing the same thing where we were working as um, freelance engineers in whatever studio that would have us and that would hire us. And then we both got our own studios, and we went and we worked at home. And then he did something brilliant. He started renting space in some big places in Nashville. And and in, so now instead of people sending him work, he was in the epicenter of of production and of country music. And so, you know, in that way, he ended up with the relationships that you don't get in your basement. Uh, with those relationships, he was able to make some bigger records and build uh, more high-profile um, relationships that got him more high-profile work. In the meantime, it's easy to say, you know, I don't want to pay rent. I don't have to pay rent or I'm paying rent to myself. And so I think what he did was pretty brilliant. Uh, and I kind of, I'm a little bit envious that, that he did that and that I didn't, but I ended up moving and working on another team anyway. But yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think the Nashville thing was like, 
you know, build relationships and build teams. I mean, uh, some of my best relationships were, there was a guy named Wayne Hahn that uh, I ended up, I owned a record company with and we earned, we signed Earl Scruggs and uh, Lizzie Long. And yeah, we had a record company for a while and that little team did some really cool stuff together. And uh, I'm still working with Wayne now, but you know, Wayne is, he started a jazz label and all that kind of stuff. So I think probably the big take home from Nashville, which there are hundreds of take homes, uh, would be like, put yourself on a team, build a team around you. Um, my best years of mix coach, uh, I have a website called mix coach and my best years of mix coach. I had a team of interns. Uh, I had, uh, several interns that ended up working for me and who have gone on to, to have really good careers. And that was because I put myself in the environment of being able to teach somebody, being able to pour into somebody that's that's coming up under me, and and uh, that's something that I I really long for sometimes is to teach people, you know. How did Mix Coach come up in your world? What prompted you to put that together? So I have a friend who, a little quick story of our of our meeting. I was in this little place in Murfreesboro, and if you live in Nashville, the place is called Demas's, and they sell. I mean, it's just it's where you go for lunch. Every you know, talking about. Uh, people coming into my studio the first the first day of the first vocal session or whatever we always had to go to this Demas's restaurant, and so it's in Murfreesboro, and I hear this guy talking. He, he's got a, a voice that carries, and he's talking about Pro Tools, and he's like two boots over, and I'm like, you know, it keeps catching my ear that somebody's talking about, you know, the multi tool and the and Regions Bend, and I'm like, I keep hearing these things that I recognize, <laughs> and we ended up in line together, and his name was Nathan Adam. Nathan taught engineering and recording at MTSU, which is a big, um, big, probably one of the biggest recording colleges in Tennessee, if not the United States. Well, we ended up in line together and I said, uh, I was working with Wayne, my friend, and we were mixing some orchestra that we'd cut over in Prague. We brought it back and, you know, we were mixing it and we took a lunch break. And I said, well, if you get a chance today, Nathan, why don't you just come by my studio? It's, you know, probably three or four miles from here. So he did. We struck up a relationship. Uh, Nathan was doing, I forget the name of the company that, that he had, but he was, uh, he was finding recording mixer or recording engineers and mixers, uh, and he was doing courses with them. And he said, um, and you know, after going to lunch a few times with Nathan, he said, uh, I, would like for, I would like to record a recording or a mixing course with you. Would you be up for that? And I said, yeah, I, you know, I love, I love to teach what I know. And so this was before ScreenFlow and Camtasia and all the easy <laughs> ways of doing it. He brought a whole computer that captured my screen, put a mic on me, and he said, just do do what you do. So it felt like a natural thing for me. And um, uh, he said he didn't have to do a lot of editing. And he said, you really ought to think about doing this because I really think you've got a gift for teaching and, and breaking things down into a simple way where people understand you should really think about doing this. So I thought about doing it. And then I was just um, messing around and I uh, happened, I was looking for, you know, website URLs and I happened upon, I thought, Mix Coach. I'm going to find Mix Coach. And it was available. And I was like, surely this is not available. And it was available. And I called Nathan and I said, dude, I just found a URL, you know, for sale for, it's called Mix Coach. You know, it's just like, it's not even for sale. It's just available. And he said, if you don't buy it in the next 10 minutes, I'm going to buy it. So I bought it. <laughs> and then I ended up, uh, I, I did a video. I found uh, ScreenFlow and I recorded a, a mixing video and 
and uh, and the rest is history. You know, it was uh, it was fun. So you grabbed this URL from Mix Coach, and did you have any idea of what the plan was, or did you just wing it? Um, I winged it definitely. Uh, the plan was I just I just created another video, and it was called Big Band Mixing because I was working on a big band record at the time. Uh, I had I, actually I had just mixed a record for this artist and and I said hey um, is there any way that I could keep these files and and do a uh, tutorial video and he said absolutely man so that was the jazz and big band mixing and so I took a song and I broke it down into because I was thinking niche I was thinking you know don't just like do a mixing video do something that nobody else is really doing a lot of and the jazz and big band thing was what I was working on and it was the it was the lowest hanging fruit so I just did one and uh and then I put it up and and started selling it and I remember the day the first sale came in it was uh, a a feeling like none other you know <laughs> and then and then after that I I started a um a membership site um, I was following some guys, and this was also before before membership sites got easy. I bought some membership software. I think it was called um, Wishlist Member, and uh, and I tied it in with PayPal, and I had all these third party plugins, and and it worked. And at this time, John John Wright's another engineer you need to talk to. He was my intern at the time, and I said, Hey, I want to start a podcast, and I want to promote this membership site. Uh, so here's your assignment, uh, Mr. Intern. I want you to come up with a list of 25 questions that you think any intern would want to know or should want to know, and that's what we'll do tomorrow. And then I want you to set up the mics, and I want you to record it, then I want you to edit it and mix it. So I had this thing with interns. like I got a reputation at MTSU. Everybody wanted to be in my internship because they didn't have to go get coffee. They didn't have to empty the garbage. The first thing you'd probably do is start trying to tune vocals or or you know, or or importing templates or something like that. So anyway, I started a podcast, the Mix Coach podcast, before podcasting got you know really popular again, like it is now. It's really like taking on a whole new life. It seems like it's it ebbs and flows. It, it kind of went dead there for a little while. And now everybody's podcasting, thankfully, because I love podcasts. So. Uh, we did 12 episodes in one sitting. You know, we would we would answer the podcast, and what we would do is I'd say, okay, here's the plan. This is my workflow uh, experience from back in Asheville. I'd say, here's what we're going to do. You're gonna you're gonna ask me the question, and then I'm going to answer the question, and then I'm going to introduce the question, and then I'm going to introduce the podcast, and you're going to edit it to where it sounds like this is the Mix Code Podcast episode number two. Today we're going to be talking to John about how to get the vocals to sit on top of a mix. So stay tuned. And we'd play the bumper music. He'd ask the question. I'd answer the question. And I'd do a little pitch toward the membership side. And we did 12 of those in one day until my voice wore out. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. that That is amazing. And what year was were you doing all this with, with the membership side and Mix Coach and the podcast? I guess when the whole Mix Coach thing started happening was... Um, 2008, 2009 is when I talked to Nathan Adam and recorded the video for him. And then uh, 2010, my daughter was born, and I was uh, I was thinking about you know other um, passive streams of income, and I was thinking about all the times that people had called me because of their experience having fun in the studio, and they'd say, "Hey man, since we got home from your uh, studio." I bought Pro Tools, and uh, can you show me how to set it up, or how did you get that blah, 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 or, or or how did you get the snare to sound this certain way on this song? And I would spend hours on the phone 
coaching people through how to set it up, knowing full well that you know I would probably not to get not get to do their next record. So the whole you know building in fun to the studio and making it look easy, probably I was creating my own competition. So I thought, well, shoot, I may as well record what I'm doing one time and then say, you know, I I do have um, how to do that, and it's uh, it's right here. And then you know people started buying those things and uh, those those videos, and you know if uh, that's how mixed coaches kind of kind of born. I want to talk a little bit about that. I want to drill down deeper into some a term you use there that I don't think gets used a lot on this show, and that is passive income. Now, the term passive income generally is, you know, like you said, you create a product like that, like a, a an instructional video. People buy it, and it generates money. You do it once. You know, it's definitely a model that we see today with, you know, Mix with the Masters has their video subscription series. Pure Mix has their thing. It's, it's a very common thing now. But at that point in time, where did you first hear the term passive income? Well, I think the first thing that I heard that really got me thinking of this was I, I read a book um, called The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. And and I don't know if you've read it or not, but in the book, he talks about creating a video, uh, creating um, Google ads for it and selling the video like that. And then I also read a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which was about you make your money work for money. You, you treat your money like employees and you make them them go out and get more money. Um, and so and then I started following this guy named Pat Flynn who uh, has a website called Smart Passive Income. And he started his website and his uh, his um, podcast about the same time I did. So I was kind of, and I do this all the time, I not only you know try to copy people's great mixes, but I also try to copy their business models and, <laughs> and things like that. So the passive income thing was from, you know, he has a website called Smart Passive Income. And, and also I noticed too that, you know, if you're going to, teach people to do what you do for them already, then you better have a plan for replacing what money you're losing by teaching and being a teacher and being generous. And so I started thinking about that, that, you know, I had already been writing songs and I had already, you know, had pretty good success as a songwriter, but still not a ton of money in that, especially in a smaller genre of music like the like the southern gospel or gospel music it's just like a, a subgenre of a of a subgenre almost and uh, and so there's not a I know I have friends that make good money writing songs um started a record company and signed you know some artists and and to me you know I I don't know I just it didn't seem like that was and and that was being as lucrative enough, enough. So I created several little paths like that, but uh, found myself kind of wearing out or kind of burning out on on doing that so much. So, but that's where I first heard about it was um, Tim Ferriss' book, the Rich Dad Poor Dad book, and the Smart Passive Income. And there are uh, there's there's another couple of um, podcasts that I was listening to that was uh, that was instrumental in me pursuing a smart passive a passive income stream. And songwriting essentially is passive income. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that? Yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, I, I found that it, it can be passive if you have the right team. Ah, uh, back to the team. Right? Yeah, back to the team thing. If you're trying to do it yourself, which I selfishly kind of did, you know, trying to think, well, I don't want to give somebody half of the proceeds of this song 
when I got it cut or I talked to the artist about cutting it, which, you know, 50% of a lot of money is worth more than 100% of nothing. You know, if I have any regrets, it would probably be not trying to pursue a legitimate writing deal that would keep me challenged and, you know, you know, I've got to turn in. There's nothing that inspires quite like a deadline, right? Mm-hmm. You know, when, when I talked to you a few minutes ago and said, hey, can we bump this back an hour? <laughs> I got two songs mixed in that hour. So nothing nothing inspires quite like a deadline. So I wish I would have kind of tied the songwriting thing to that and made somebody expect songs from me by the end of the month. But yeah, it kind of is a passive income. But, you know, it's it's a numbers game too. You, you want to tell the story about about somebody writing that hit song and it just, you know, made them a million dollars. But most careers are not made like that. Most careers are made by hundreds of sucky songs that never see the light of day. And then that 101st song is the one that people are kind of interested in. And then they look back at your catalog and say, well, you know, these songs are not so sucky. Uh, so it's kind of a numbers game and it takes a lot of work to write songs and, and somebody being creative, like most of the people I know, you, your self-esteem kind of gets in the way and your pride and like nobody wants to hear that song and that's already been said a hundred times and so and so wrote this so much better and it, it's hard it's not i wouldn't say it's passive now that we know that we're talking about it. it's not passive at all it's like you're all your emotions and your your feelings are always like um you're wearing your heart on your sleeve all the time audience i'll put a link to, in the show notes to all those books that we mentioned Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. So moving to California. Now, there's a lot of Californians moving to Nashville. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so you have done just the opposite. You know, where were you in your career with with audio that you decided, well, I'm going to leave Nashville and go to California? Well, let me set up the story by saying I did a lot of records in Nashville. One of the records that I did was for this group called Hope's Call. 
And it was a kind of a family group, like I, like I talked about. And I wrote songs on their record. I produced all of their records. And um, one of the singers, Eddie Harrison, we ended up working together at this church in Murfreesboro. I was the band leader, you know, the, the musical director for this church. And he was one of the worship leaders uh, at the time. And I remember going to lunch with him one day, and he said, I've got an opportunity to, I think this was 2006, he said, I've got the opportunity to move to California. What do you think about that? And I think he thought that as one of his friends, I would say, don't do it, man. You can't move. But I said, dude, those opportunities don't come that often. You know, even if it's even if it doesn't work out and you hate it, you can move back to Nashville and be that California have that California credibility, you know, cause for some reason, <laughs> for some reason, if you used to live in LA, you're more legitimate as a session player and as a mixer, all that kind of stuff. And I was, I was, you know, I was thinking, Hey, you need to move, move to California. I mean, pray about it and move, you know, and if it doesn't work, come back. And it was like, that makes sense, man. So he came out here and we kept up with each other. Oh, that wasn't 2006. That was, that was later because I remember he'd been here about five years and I came to the the NAM show in Anaheim with the mix coach, some of the mix coach guys. And I was doing interviews and doing product reviews and things like that. And I stayed at Eddie's house, which is not, you know, 15 minutes from the Anaheim um, Convention Center where the NAM show is. Stayed here for 11 days, ended up doing some really cool stuff. Uh, came back the next year, stayed another 10 or 11 days. And that time I brought Jana with me and I said, I remember about 10 days in, I said, I bet you're ready to go home because she hates living out of a suitcase. And she said, no, I love it. I love it. it was 70 degrees here for one thing <laughs> and 19 in Nashville. So um, so I was always kind of a little bit jealous of Eddie because he had the courage to make the big move, which is something as you get older, it's harder and harder to do. And I understand completely why, because it's not as easy as that move from Asheville to Nashville. So Eddie... Um, had always been talking about me producing a record for their church, uh, a worship record for their church. And he was like, hey, I got the budget money. We're doing it. Booked a trip to Nashville. We were writing songs. And, um, you know, we, we set probably a week's worth of writing dates up with me and some other friends that were uh, some good writers. And we were writing for the record. And then about the day before he left, I was like, so you guys are in California. You're like... Um, you're like in a drought, right? He's like, yeah, man, it really stinks. And I said, well, what does that do to the power bill and the in the uh, water bill? Does it mean does the water bill go up in the drought? And he's like, why are you why are you asking such like deep questions, Kevin? I said, I don't know. I mean, ever since I've been to your church, I just I'm just kind of you know have this idea in my head that one day I'd like to move out there. And he was like, man, I um I am actively looking for. Uh, he said, as a matter of fact, and it was kind of funny. I, I haven't told this before either. But um, there's a guy named Matt who goes to this church, and he works for QSC. He's an engineer at QSC. He's like a brilliant man. He goes to their church. Brian, our pastor, asked Eddie, he said, if you could wave a magic wand and find anybody to come out here and be your technical director, because they were about to move to another big, uh, a big building, their first huge building, and they needed somebody to kind of build systems for their volunteers, find and train and uh, teach their volunteers and coach them. And um, and Eddie told Brian when he asked him that, he said, it would either be Matt or Kevin. That's my two. And I know it's not possible for either one of them because Matt works for QSC and Kevin's, you know, um, doing well in Nashville. 
And so when he came, you know, that had been the week before. And then when we were there, I just I just kept asking questions about California. And and so he kind of like read into what I was uh, asking, I guess. And he said, uh, don't tease me with this. If you're interested in coming to California, I need somebody and I want you to come out. And I was like, I, I don't know. Let's see what it looks like. And that was in February. In March, I was out here at their Easter service that year. And we were already talking about what would it look like. And and then I, that was that was in February when we were riding. March is when I came out. I started in June, sold my house, everything. And honestly, uh, you know, if people ask me what made you decide that, it was, I think the bottom line of it was, I'm 52 now, and I didn't want to get to the end of my life, end of my career, and ask, um, what did you do with the opportunities you had? You know, you had an opportunity to write a song, and you wrote one, and you had success doing that. You won awards doing it. Um, and then you had an opportunity to start a record company with a, a brilliant arranger, and you took that. And, you know, look what happened. And you took the chance to start a studio in your house, and look what happened. And now, you know, I was thinking you have the opportunity to move to Nashville and I mean, move to California and do something completely different than what you're doing, except building on what your strengths are. What well, I didn't want to live with regret of like not taking that opportunity, you know, so I took it. I prayed about it a lot. It was a hard decision to do. And it was a physically uh, it was a I could feel it physically uh, several times because the ball was rolling. I had prayed about it. I kept getting these, uh, what I felt like were thumbs up from God, like, you know, and so I just did it. I just took a step of faith and, and did it. And I've been living out here for almost four years now. So, and what's the verdict? What do you think? I love it. I miss, I miss Nashville. I miss my friends in Nashville. I miss that, that community, but I love this community here too. You know, everybody, you know, what's funny is that people, people, they, they, tend to lump everybody in California into the same uh, stereotype, you know, and and people ask me about Southern hospitality, you know, because I lived in Alabama and North Carolina, Tennessee. But uh, to be honest with you, I have met some of the nicest people, most friendly, um, outgoing, generous people here in California. And I don't know if I'm in a pocket of like just really awesome people, <laughs> but I don't feel like I am. I feel like there's a lot of people here that um, that are supposed to be in my life right now. So let me ask you about a stereotype. People, I think, have a stereotype uh, about religion. And your religion is very important to you. And I'm not a religious person. Do you feel ever at odds with your your faith in the world of audio? Not really, because, you know, I, I have to say that if I was recording kinds of music that that kind of rubbed and disagreed with what I believe, then yeah, it would. But um, I've always come from an abundance mindset and not a scarcity mindset. Like, I have to do this because I have to make a living. And I've always made, like I said, you know, early on in my career, I made decisions based on where it was going to take me uh, or, you know, where it was going to put me, like in a studio or no. And that was kind of my, my answer. So I've recorded the kind of music that it's a niche of, of music for the most part that, you know, it, it agrees with what I believe in. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there's no rub there now how some people conduct business. I mean, Christians are, 
you know, are human. We're all human and we're all going to screw up and we're all maybe even going to add to the stereotype. But I find that, you know, um, it's a very personal thing. Uh, it's just, it's something that it's in my core. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, I have, you know, I have done this even recently where I've had opportunities to work with some, um, some higher profile people, but I looked into the future and say, where is that going to take me? For instance, is the lyric content going to be something that I'm going to be proud to play for my daughter and be proud for her to sing back along? And and so I shy away from them from that kind of stuff. I mean, even simple cover tunes that when I listen to the lyric, I'm going, do I want my nine-year-old singing those lyrics back to me? Because she she is interested in the things that I'm interested in. When I take her to school, when I could take her to school, we would listen to music and she would sing it back to the top of her lungs. And I'm like, I'm so glad that I didn't do that because I know she's going to listen to me mixing it mm-hmm. and she's going to be singing it back. And am I going to regret her singing it like that? Am I going to say, well, we can't say that. And daddy was just mixing that. I mean, so I've, I try to, you know, put myself in the, in the seat of like, am I going to be proud through my daughter's eyes um, with what I'm doing? And do you ever encounter any, I don't know what the term would be, any pushback from people being a man of faith in the world of audio? Man, these are some good questions. I've never been asked this before. Thank you for thank you for doing that. I've got a story that I can tell, and I don't think you would mind me telling you. Um, so I was mixing this jazz record. Uh, actually, I wasn't mixing it yet. I have a mastering engineer friend named Alan Silverman. He's a mastering engineer in New York City. By the way, another good guy you need to talk to. Okay. He mastered all of my records and, you know, I built a relationship. I decided that instead of sending or leaving to chance the thing, the records that I was going to mix uh, and then hand it off to somebody who may or may not like my style of mixing and then let them do what they thought I should have done. Instead, I was going to say, even though maybe I didn't like your first mastering job, tell me what I can do different so that you can do your job better and, and I'll do the same thing. So I built this relationship with him. And he's been very complimentary of my mixes, jazz mixes, gospel mixes, country things that I've done. So he calls me one day and he says, hey, I've got a guy and he has tracked his record over in um, Switzerland or Sweden or something like that. And he can't seem to find a mixer that he likes. Would you be interested? And I said, absolutely. So what he, he'd already been kind of setting it up. He told Marshall, he said, I know the guy that can mix your record, but he lives in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. But don't don't judge him because he's mixing jazz in in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. So anyway, we started talking, and we're, and this is where the religious thing comes up. So we talked together on the phone. His name is Marshall Wood, and he called and he was kind of he was kind of uh, scoping me out a little bit. And he said, uh, "So Kevin, I understand you're a religious guy." And I'm like. Yeah, yeah, I do a lot of uh, a lot of Christian music. I do a lot of jazz music, and the thing about the thing about the Christian music that I do, just me and you talking, is that it's not one sound. You know, on one record, you could have a bluegrass song, you could have an acapella song, and you could have this huge ballad with a full orchestra on it, all on one record. And you have to not only mix each one of those songs, but you have to make them sound cohesive too. So back to the story. I said, I've mixed a lot of a lot of music, but I do a lot of Christian music. And he said, so he was trying to get the feel of it if he was going to be comfortable in my studio. He said, so if I uh, if I were to say, let a cuss word fly, 
would you would you be offended? And I said, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and, and I did that on purpose because I wanted him to know that I'm not this, um, I'm not stereotype. I'm a person that I think you're going to like. And if I get a chance to share my faith with you, I will. And and if it doesn't come up, then I'm not going to force anything. I, I'm, I want the relationship. So um, fast forward a little bit. He and his wife came in. It was a great jazz record. And it was such a blast to mix. And and as he was with me, and he could see, and, and I'm t- I keep tying these backstories back, uh, his record was the most important record I'd ever done at the time. I was into that record. I wanted to make it the best record because I knew that there was a there was a few guys behind me that didn't do what he what he wanted done. So the harder I tried, and the more I stayed in there, and and did this little EQ, and and uh, he was like, that that's it, that's cool. So he finally got comfortable enough to say, you know, you know what bothers me about Christians, and I'm like. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I was, where's this gonna uh, go <laughs> i was like okay here we go and he said he said you see the fish people the fish on people's the back of people's car you know the little i forget what it's called but the little christian fish mm-hmm. and he said and they seem to be the first ones that flip you off when you pull over in front of them or something i'm like <laughs> um i said um the uh i said christians are are, are people they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna have bad days and good days but i said being a christian is not about so much about um, your humanity. It's about who you know and who uh, and and what you believe in and and what you you know who you let be the the coach and the and the boss of your life. You know who who you listen to to kind of guide you. And he was like, oh, that makes sense. So and I remember in that you know week or so of us mixing and stuff, we we got into some pretty good conversation. And um, you know not just not just about religion, just about life in general. But my my take on it is different because of my of my my view of who I am, you know. Anyway, after the record was done, he was happy. He had mastered it and all that stuff. And he said, "Hey, um, he, we talked on the phone, and we were talking about possibly the next record." And he said, "Oh, I wanted you to know that um, I did a lot of thinking about all the things that we talked about, and and I went to church when we got back to Boston, and I just wanted you to know that I gave my heart to Christ like you did." And we're brothers now. And I was like, wow, I got a chill on my arm just thinking about it. And, and it was like one of those things where you, you, I mean, I know some people are better at it than I am, but you can, I mean, just the light that, you know, hopefully that, that's inside you kind of ekes out and kind of people notice. And uh, that guy is Marshall Wood. He's actually the bass player now for Tony Bennett. And he's been his bass player for a long time. And uh, and I just, that's one of the, my um, proudest moments. Not that I did his record, but I helped uh, point him to the, you know, point him to where I'm going. So that's like turning on, turning somebody on to to your favorite DAW and having him say, "Oh, I'm a Pro Tools user now too." <laughs> yeah, <it's> a, <laughs> or I'm a Reaper user. Yeah, uh, that's I'm Reform Reaper. That's user. <laughs> interesting. Uh, there are aspects I think to the world of audio where I think it's a stereotype that all audio people are the exact same kind of people. You know, maybe maybe if you're not religious, you think everybody else in the pro audio world is is not religious, but or or that everybody's liberal or uh, when, you know, that's not necessarily the case. And it's just very interesting uh for me, it's been an interesting journey to interact with people that I've got to know as people before I realized that they were uh they were Christians that uh, that regularly go to church or volunteer at their church or do or do whatever, and that's really 
turned my mind around. Not that I hate to tell you, Kevin, I'm not going to go to church tomorrow. I'm a holiday Catholic. I, you know, I go like, <laughs> you know, at uh, Christmas time and maybe Easter when there's no virus, uh, you know, shelter in right. place warnings going on. But, uh, but it, it has given me a, a greater, uh, a broader viewpoint about pro audio people in general that, they come from all different walks of life and and they have these different viewpoints. And if they're good people, I really don't care. You know, it's like the fact that your faith is important to you, being that you're a friend of mine, it's important to me for you. You know, I'm not going to adopt that, but it's, imp- it, you know, I respect it, I think is where I'm going with that. So, or that, or those differences uh, are more easily respected by me now than say when I was, you know, full of piss and vinegar in my twenties. So we're, we're almost out of time, but I want to dive in a little bit into your day-to-day now. So now you're in California, you're in your Belinda, and you are, what is your title at this church? This is your main gig, right? Right, right. Uh, it's a tech director is what they call it, or a production director. And I'm basically, you know, I was talking to um, Todd Elliott this morning, and I'm still trying to figure out what it is that I what is my job description, you know? And I think they vary, but uh, as far as my job description, it's called a tech director, but basically it's not all tech. I mean, I don't have anything to do with IT or the phone systems or anything like that. Mine is all audio, video, lights, and basically systems for volunteers. Um, so I, I, um, I'm the guy that says, you know, you'd be good at this. Have you ever tried running a camera? Uh, I mean, you've got, you're a photographer. I mean, I'm the kind of guy that, that if they're at all interested, I can find a place for them on my team. And then I, you know, I'm learning and teaching lights all in kind of the same span, span of time. I'm learning and teaching video production all in the span, same span of time. And right now I'm learning some video editing. I'm uh, kind of obsessed with that right now. So that that's my job description is tech director, but that title, uh, I think it varies. You know, some, some guys do have to do the phone systems and the, and the, uh, the cameras and things like, or the, uh, security cameras and stuff. I don't, mine's all, all, all production driven. And in our last, uh, few weeks of meeting on Friday mornings and, and discussing, uh, you know, what's going on in all of our lives, you've really been on a, on a video kind of, uh, trajectory video is really driving a lot of your your learning process right now is that correct it is i've always loved production i've always don't judge me okay one of my favorite shows is uh dancing with the stars or it was <laughs> back in the day you laugh i said not i told you don't laugh at me sorry and you <laughs> dancing with the star all right well uh, okay well I'm, I'm 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 gonna tell you why i love that show first of all if you're in nashville it's live you've got a live host You've got live dancers, you've got live music, live television, everything, and it's done. Uh, even when the dancers are on the floor, they know which camera to look in. And to me, that's one of those things where that's like, and, and to do it in a live, I mean, anybody can do it in, you know, in five years, you could get the thing right in five years, but they do it week after week after week. And it's not just that one, it's like, you know, when when these other shows are live, I love that, I've always loved that. and. And so I've always been kind of drawn to that, uh, to that live thing. And, and I don't know, I've just, um, I noticed lights more. I noticed, I noticed video, um, cuts more. I found this church in, 
there was a guy, his name is Rob McTavish, and he works at a church too. Some of the most talented people I know work in, in that environment. Um, he did a thing for the NAB show, I think, mm-hmm. for Canon. And he did this thing on what he did at his church. And I'm like, I saw the video that he was playing. I'm like, it looked like an edited music video, but he was doing it live every Sunday with volunteers. And I'm like, I have got to know what he's doing. So I, I found him. I found his email address on his website and I called him and I said, you have no idea, uh, no idea, you know, who I am, but I have got to come and check out what you're doing. He picked me up at the airport personally. And I keep an Evernote, and I, I had a list of questions in Evernote about you know the things I knew to ask. He answered every question on the way from the airport to the church, and then everything I learned for the next two days was just like mind blowing. And I brought it back to my team. So I always I've been noticing like, and, and I feel like my team has really uh, come light years forward as a result of me pursuing that relationship. Lighting, you know, I, I'm I'm still working on lighting, although I feel like I'm you know, kind of dialing it in a little bit, but video editing lately, because what we did last week, one of the things I was, I think I was telling you about last week on the calls, we did one of those virtual choirs where uh, people record themselves on their cell phone mm-hmm. and they send it to me. And then I sync it back up to video and mix the audio. And then we put it out and, the, and the, I wouldn't say it's gone viral, but the radio station picked up the song that we mixed and, and edited. And uh, so it's, I mean, it's fun learning that new stuff. I didn't know how to use Premiere that much before then, but I got a crash course in it. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. So it's interesting, I mean, you've come from... I mean, a long history of audio and a lot of the lessons that you've learned along the way about learning new technologies and and adopting them into your workflow, I'm sure apply to all these new video things and new lighting things. You can draw on that audio experience to fast track you into uh, what you need to learn quickly. One of the things I got from uh, the Tim Ferriss book for our work week is there's a Pareto's principle. It's an 80-20 principle, which means that you get 80% of the results from 20% of the input and vice versa. So I find when I'm learning new things, just learn what you need to know then. Uh, One of the podcasts I listened to called it Just In Time Learning. I have a tendency, as other nerds like me, is to is to find a subject and just learn everything you can about it. But I find that having a deadline uh, helps you kind of do that Pareto's principle, and not only that, but uh, Parkinson's law, which is which says basically that a task will expand or contract given the time that you give it the task. And you remember, I, you know, I told you a second ago, hey, I called you and I said, hey, can I can we meet at six instead of five? And you said, sure. Well, in that time, I gave myself time to mix. Um, I had three songs to mix, but I got two done. So I guess I failed, but I got two songs mixed. So, I, you know, the 80-20 principle mixed with Pareto's, Pareto's principle is the magic sauce. Or or, um, or, know, 80, or Pareto's principle mixed with Parkinson's? Parkinson's law, exactly. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, if you mix those two together uh, and you learn what you have to learn to get it done, you'll get it done. And then the next time you'll build on that. That's one of the things that I that I try to teach my guys that I've tried to mentor through the years is like you don't learn anything from a song you're working on. You learn stuff from a song you've finished because you look back at the song and you say, now I'm going to do the snare a little bit different because it's not cutting through in my car. But you don't really learn that stuff so much while you're doing it. You do you learn it after it's done. So get it done. You know, if you have 10 hours to mix, mix one mix it uh, 10 one hour mixes. You'll learn a lot more than one 10 hour mix. Man, that is so spot on. Uh, I just mixed a song yesterday. I put on the headphones and put about two and a half three hours into it. Mixed it on headphones. It got up today. Took a quick listen on speakers, made a couple minor adjustments. There's a lot that I learned. I, I don't typically mix on headphones, but there was a lot that I learned in retrospect. Of, so everything you're saying uh, really is hitting home for me in that all the issues that I had in that song, I, at the time I was trying to figure it out. Well, I figured it out, but it took completing it to figure it out. And, and now I can look back and go, oh, you did this, this, this to get here. I got to remember that. Yeah, one of the tricks that I do, like when I, uh, a lot of what I was mixing early on and even through the the most of my career was 10 song records. You know, people would do 10 songs for some reason. Or there was a time in the mid 90s where people were doing 14 songs. <laughs> and they would, you know, uh, they would give you all those songs to mix. And one of the tricks that I found was mix them all as fast as you can. Just get them done. Because one of them, when you take it to your car, and, and when you have the luxury to do this, I should say, mm -hmm. when you have the time and luxury to do this, mix them all and get them done. Get it behind you, and then take those mixes out to the car. One of those mixes is gonna is gonna like shine above all the rest of them, and then you can say, "What is it about this mix?" I was doing it for a friend of mine, Rolf Wire, a few weeks ago. He he gave me four songs to mix, mixed all four songs, took them to the car, and I thought, and I did something slightly different on every one because I was just like. Uh, you know, in beast mode. Um, and one of those songs, the snare sounded so much better than the rest of the snares. And I went back and I thought, oh, I wouldn't have replicated that. Um, you know, I wouldn't have done that. Uh, but now it's built into my workflow um, because I mixed them fast and got them finished, you know, technically finished. But, you know, with a couple rounds of revisions, uh, you'd be surprised at how fast you can go through a song if you, if you, if you just do what you know to do yeah. instead of trying to learn something new as you're mixing, you know? Well, Kevin, we're out of time. I want to make sure that people are aware of where to get in touch with you. You're on LinkedIn, aren't you? I am. And but uh, I, I, I need to, I need to uh, pay more attention to the LinkedIn profile. <laughs> well, we'll put a link to that. And then uh, MixCoach, is it MixCoach.com? MixCoach.com. Well, Kevin, great to see you. It's Thursday as we record this, so I'll see you tomorrow morning at the crack of dawn uh, at 6 a.m. Uh, for our call, 6 a.m. for at least you and I. Take care, my friend. Take care, Matt. Talk to you soon. Okay. Kevin Ward here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. want to thank you for coming by and uh, spending some time with me, and I hope that you are doing well in your world. Of course, I got to thank all my crew that is stuck at home working on the show, and that includes Anne-Marie Plough on the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme music, and Mr. Chuck Smith, Mr. Magic Announcer Voice Guy. Yeah. Anyways, spread the word. Tell all your audio friends about us. Tell all your non-audio friends, too. And until next time... 
Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out. 